0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. As you've probably noticed, the spring of 2022 is when art museums are finally getting to share with us all of the significant art historical exhibitions that they had planned back in the 2010s, but that were delayed during the pandemic. We have another great example of one of those shows on the program this week. My first guest is Judith W. Mann, the curator of Paintings on Stone, Science and the Sacred, 1530 to 1800 which is on view at the St. Louis Art Museum through May 15th. Mann was assisted in the project by Andrea Miller. The exhibition, which includes more than 70 works, all on stone, by 58 artists, is the first examination of the pan-European practice of painting on stones such as lapis lazuli, slate, and marble. The exhibition is accompanied by a terrific catalog. I can hardly remember the last time I had more fun reading about something I knew nothing about. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $50. Don't miss it. Coming up next month, on April 7th and 8th, the St. Louis Art Museum will be presenting a virtual symposium that explores painting on stone and the role that stone played in the meaning of individual artworks. The symposium is free but requires Zoom registration. We'll have a link on the show page on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Nicholas Galanin, whose work is now on view at the Sheldon Art Museum, and which is coming later this year to the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art and the Weatherspoon Art Museum at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. If you enjoy the show, please remember to give us a five-star rating on Spotify, which will help more people find us. Judy Mann, after the break. The Mississippi Museum of Art is pleased to be the first to present A Movement in Every Direction. Legacies of the Great Migration. This exhibition asks 12 contemporary artists to trace their personal stories through the Great Migration and explore their family connections to the South. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition will unveil newly commissioned works across media. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration opens at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson on April 9th. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Virtual Realities, the Art of M.C. Escher from the Michael S. Sachs Collection. The world premiere of the most extensive Escher Collection ever held is now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Discover the connection between math and art through Escher's mind-bending puzzles. This special exhibition is on view for a limited time. Get your tickets at mfah.org slash mcescher. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, Sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Judy Mann, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Most simply, why did artists want to paint on stone? What did it do for them or allow them to do?
1: When I began working on this, there was an understanding that one, the ancients had used a stone, specifically marble. There are a number of examples in the ancient museum in Naples. There was a sense that there was a Kind of a competition. Uh, Leonardo and Michelangelo debated whether sculpture or painting was the preferable art form. The idea of using the sculptor's medium but using the painter's tools was somehow a way of addressing that competition. But I think probably it goes more to the ego of an individual person. And that's Sebastiano del Piombo, a Venetian painter who came to Rome. In 1511, he was brought there to do a fresco, actually, for the banker, Agostino Chigi. And then at that moment, Michelangelo and Raphael were there, both in Rome with large workshops. Leonardo came, I think, in 1513. It was a very competitive atmosphere. Sebastiano aligned himself with Michelangelo. And also, Sebastiano being Venetian... He wasn't as wedded to the materials or techniques that artists who were trained in Tuscany or Rome or those places would be. So I think he was a natural-born experimenter. He was not the only one experimenting with different ways to use oil paints, to use surfaces and things. But he seems to have been the most dedicated. And so by 1530, we have an assertion in a letter that he had developed a technique for painting on stone. But I think partly it was this attempt to sort of separate himself out from Michelangelo to do something new, something innovative. I also think that in Sebastiano's mind and then the minds of those artists who learned from him and also used stone, is stone had meaning. Stone conveyed meaning. Putting a work of art on stone immediately changes it. It becomes either about weight or about solemnity or about endurance or about longevity. So I think the, my sense, the way I would describe it, is, is stone always had meaning. Later, it became a visual thing, but for the early works starting in around the mid 1530s, I think it, the meaning of the stone had a lot to do with it.
0: You mentioned painting technique, so during the period when you know with which the show starts in the 16th century, the common things on which painters painted, if you will, were fresco and panel. How was painting on stone different than painting on on fresco or panel? What did painters have to do differently and why?
1: So portable works would be done on panel or canvas. Wall paintings would be fresco. Again, something that wasn't so big in Venice, partly because of humidity. So it was painting to replace fresco as a wall painting technique. It was painting with oil directly onto a wall surface. So you had to mess around with the mixture of the paint and also ultimately heating the oil served to help it adhere to the stone. So it was painting in general is like cooking, and this was also like cooking. So experimenting, trial and error. Sebastiano, according to Vasari anyway, painted on marble, on porphyry, and on slate, We have only paintings on slate by Sebastiano that survive. We're not quite sure whether Vazavi wasn't being accurate. There was a reason he might have said. But anyway, not every piece of, of slate is identical, depending on where they're quarried. Most of the slate used in Rome came from a quarry outside of Genoa, from a town, Lavagna. So it really was a kind of trial and error kind of thing. And Sebastiano's was very good at it. And if you look at the surviving paintings he did on slate, you will see an adhesion of the paint to the surface of the slate. Quite a few other artists, even those who made quite a few paintings on slate, weren't always as good at doing it. And a lot of times their surviving paintings have large areas of flaking where the paint simply pulled off the surface of the slate.
0: We're going to come back to dark stones such as Slate a little later on. But before we get there, you know, this show and, and catalog cover work made between, this is amazing, 1530 and 1800, which is a heckin' long time. Do we think the reasons painters used stone as a support changed over that time, or was it consistent? And might that might, might, might the answer tell us something about either their world or what they were painting, or dot, dot, dot?
1: Well, first of all, the parameters of the show. The show, we titled it as Going to 1800, because we had the opportunity to include this beautiful work on white marble that was dated 1796, which had initially been promised to the show. In the end, the collector got sort of nervous about lending. So That particular piece is not in the show, but that was why it went to 1800, because really the more uh, concentrated activity and interest in painting on stone goes from around 1530 to between 1620 and 1650. We certainly have examples in the 18th century, a few of which are in the show. We have examples from the 19th century. We didn't go into those. So that's the, the dating. In terms of do the reasons change, Yes. And, and I think sometimes it has to do with the individual artist, the circle or patron for whom the artist is working. But there are, at least in the this sort of initial period up to 1620, there are sort of two moments of, of import where there is a change. One happens in the 1570s when artists, particularly those around Venice, are particularly interested in the effects of sort of darkened scenes, nighttime scenes, and sort of painting light illuminating through the darkness. And they begin to use dark stones without covering the surface. Prior to that, artists are using stone, but they're painting it over entirely, And in the show, you'll see examples where you think you're looking at actual stone. You're not. You're looking at paint that is nearly the same color as the stone, but it is indeed paint. But in the 1570s, they start to leave areas bare of pure darkness, so they can represent the night or a a dark, darkened interior. Then in the 1590s, It seems that the most logical explanation, although I I certainly can't prove it, is that stones, a wider variety of stones become available to artists. It would make sense, starting with the pontificate of of Sixus V, who comes in in 1585, there is a really concerted effort to refurbish Rome, to return it to the glory of the ancient city, the city of marble. Presumably, you know, Augustus had a city of brick that he turned into a city of marble, and this idea of making Rome again into this splendid city. And so they were particularly interested in refurbishing the interiors of some of the earlier churches that had been there from the time of Constantine in the fourth, third and fourth centuries. So there was available stone. Stone that were being used for these revetments, and also in Florence, the Medici were wild about stone, and they go on to establish this workshop, famous for its kind of cut stone pictures. You know, where they piece together pieces of colored stone to make still lifes or to make various beautiful patterns, whatever. And that's founded in 1588. So starting in the 1590s, you simply have available a range of very interesting stone. So then artists begin to interact with the stone. They begin to use the stone visually and to allow it to guide them, or sometimes it seems to inspire the whole composition. And this is accompanied by literature in the 1580s and 90s, you know, that talk about uh, sort of artists working together with nature or working together nature and God. So this either a competition on this stone, where God made the stone and the artist is making the paint, or whether you're collaborating or competing, but this idea of this working together with nature. So those are are the sort of changes. And then after that, it seems like a lot of artists, for various reasons, either had this opportunity to pick up a wonderful piece of stone and used it, but never used it again, or perhaps working for a patron who wished to have works made on stone.
0: That's all fairly amazing. You mentioned Darkstone, particularly Slate, as enabling particular kinds of scenes. I was pretty fascinated by the Slate works as I went through the catalog. Two kinds in particular. Scenes often, maybe always, religious scenes at night and portraits. Let's talk about religious scenes first. How did painters, maybe using a particular specific example or two, allow or find slate to enable them to do things that they just couldn't do the same way on panel?
1: Well, if they couldn't do it on panel, or perhaps they could do it more easily on slate, you know, simply making a nighttime scene, it was a matter of efficiency, (laughs) To do it that way, the museum actually, in the course of, of this project, uh, bought last year a painting by Jacopo Bassano, really important artist uh, working in Venice. And in fact, it was his work that might have been the first example we know of of a bear, using bare slate to create a night scene. And I think the painting we have in the show is a Lamentation of the Dead Christ. So immediately the dark stone establishes this kind of somber ambience for the subject. And you can imagine these small slate panels often are used for images of the Passion of Christ, that is those last events from the life of Christ as he is suffering and then is crucified and dies. So that is one impetus for using them. A number of these images contain the body, the full represented body of Christ. And I have come to believe, I, I don't know that I, I, everybody has embraced this idea, but it seems to me that when, particularly for an image that is intended to be a devotional image, the painting of the body of Christ on a piece of stone was meant to inspire or to remind the a person praying about how the body was placed on a piece of stone at the end of his life, the Stone of Unction, as it was prepared for burial. This is a moment in the late 16th and into the 17th century where theologians encourage people to physically try to put themselves into the events of Christ's life, to imagine the nails what the, the hardness of the metal and to imagine the surface of the cross and the texture. And I I really think that by putting a painted image of the body of Christ on a piece of stone would evoke for them this very hallowed sense of a, a kind of an immediacy, that they're there in the presence of Christ's body which is a central element, of course, of the mass. So I I think that, and it wouldn't just be a dark stone, all sorts of stones had that meaning, but you do see these repeated images on small pieces of dark stone, dark marble, dark slate, of these events from Christ's Passion with the body painted there on the stone.
0: Ah, so you you are describing a, a broad philosophical environment, which is really interesting. I mean, one of the things that struck me about the slate religious scenes, if you will, is that, and again, this is just looking in the catalog, we're taping this before you're even installing the show, is that the black backgrounds would seem darker than you would get oil paint on panel, in part because the slate absorbs light, I presume, or maybe I'm just imagining that. And I wonder if one of the things that painters might have been attracted to was the way that pushes figures forward, gives figures a different dimensionality and pushes them into the viewer's space.
1: Well, you know, on a canvas, for example, if you're trying to paint and and to create that deep, dark blackness, the canvas has a weave. As you prepare your canvas to paint, you try to get rid of that weave as much as you can. But it's still, one, absorbs a bit, and two, it's always going to have a bit of a kind of rougher surface. So you're not going to get quite the effect of an inky darkness that you can on just this piece of stone that's black. Also, for some of these works, the stone was polished. The slate was polished. The marble was polished. And becomes a mirror-like surface. And there are two particular scenes in the show where one is Troy burning by Stefano della Bella, and one is a scene of Dante and Virgil going into the underworld. And these are scenes of fire and scenes of, you know, fire and destruction. So, and these are painted on highly, highly reflective surfaces. And in fact, this was brought home to me, not that I had realized it, until I was looking at the Stefano Bella, Bella in the Uffizi. I had made an appointment, and they had put it out for me in a storage room with a ceiling that was all a grid of lighting, and they had laid it on the table. And when I looked down at it, I couldn't see a thing because all I was seeing was the reflection of the light above. And then I realized, oh, right, you know, in the 17th century, they would have been looking at this at night under can- or in an interior space under candlelight, under flickering torches, And it just blew me away that that seeing that scene of Troy burning would have been fantastic under those lighting conditions. So they're really maximizing the visual sensation there of the uh, fire. And in fact, one, I've been in contact with a conservator at Cologne. Uh, They are working on a painting on stone on alabaster that they have. And one of the issues is alabaster is translucent. So... Clearly, there are a number, and there'll be a number in the show, where artists are very aware of this translucency. In the case of the painting in Cologne, which is not going to be loaned to the exhibition because we didn't know about it. It hadn't been conserved when I was doing my work. They were able to set up in their lab the painting on alabaster in front of a candle. Okay, they can do that. We would never do that here, but they did it there. And The scene is St. Lawrence on the grill.
0: There's fire under the grill, of course, yes.
1: (laughs) Fire under the grill. So I'll use it, I hope, in my opening lecture. She has sent me a video of this, and you can see the ebbing and and intensity of the fire under St. Lawrence, and it's fabulous. So they're very aware of the properties of the stone and translucency or the deep inky blackness that dark stones can bring.
0: You mentioned the Napolitano from 1622 of Dante and Virgil in the underworld. How did Orazio Gentileschi use alabaster in a very different way to suggest, I don't know, spiraling into hell?
1: (laughs) Well, yes. So he had the fall of the rebel angels. Now there, artists use the stone very differently. Some artists do not really interfere or suggest any markings on the stone other than the markings that are there. Orazio, in the case of the Fall of the Rebel Angels, really used sort of oil glazes, dark brown oil glazes, to suggest that the surface of that stone is more varied than in fact it was. I mean, it's alabaster, and it did have some modulations in the tonality, but it doesn't have the sort of darker tones of the bottom. He created that so he could have this sense of falling from the divine realm into the hellish, <laughs> the earthly, and then uh, the realms of hell. So he used a, an oil glaze to, to help enhance that effect.
0: So he's if i understand it right in like the top half top third of the painting maybe a little more than that he's building composition around stone but in the bottom third he's adding to it.
1: Right. And of course in the top there there's blue sky and the uh, the uh, clothing of the of archangel michael and several i mean that's all added pigment too i mean it, he's a lot.
0: So is is one of the reasons painters might have I mean among other things like really had fun <laughs> doing this. It been that it gives them a way to bring naturalism to some pretty over the top stories.
1: I think so. I think you know they you know they're just really creative and playful and I think yes they they love that idea. In a couple cases the artists really underscore the fact that you're looking at stone but yet I can sort of paint the stone away. One shouldn't talk about things that are not in the show but one Painting that is not in the show because the Louvre wouldn't lend, but it's by, in my view, the artist who's well represented in the show, Jacques Stella. He's a French classicist, and if you just evaluated him on the whole of his herb, you wouldn't necessarily catapult him into the realm of the great masters. But in terms of stone, he's the best, clearly the best. And he painted this marvelous painting on alabaster, which Often, when you're not relying on, on on it to be translucent, in other words, you're not requiring any light to come through it, often they're backed with slate. So, And slate is often backed with slate. Many of these stone paintings are backed with an additional layer of slate or another stone, but it's usually slate. So in this painting, it's a painting of Jesus seeing his mother after he's resurrected from the dead. And he's up in heaven and she's still in, on earth. And to demonstrate that she's on earth, he's painted a little section of slate that she's standing on. So the painting is painted on alabaster, obviously backed with slate. And it's if he's sort of suggested that he's peeled away the alabaster and letting you see the slate. So he's referring both to the physical object of the painting, which has an under layer of slate, and also to the idea that the alabaster represents heaven, and slate represents the earthly realm. So artists are very clever in playing with that idea.
0: I'm glad you brought up Stella, because one of the really striking pictures in in the project... So Stella was, Stella was an early to mid-17th century French painter. And there is a rest on the flight of Egypt that Stella paints on lapis lazuli. And in so doing, he uses the stone both to tell the biblical story and, and really to kind of tell it twice at two different times of day? What What is that picture and what do you think of him as doing here?
1: Well, yeah, it, it's a wonderful painting. I think he's actually changing the story a little bit because generally it it's in the sort of light of midday that the Holy Family, when the edict comes down, that Herod has declared that all male babies should be slaughtered. It's pretty horrible, but the holy family flees into Egypt. And so on route, Mary is thirsty. She wants to stop. And so they stop at a place where there's a palm tree and she's hungry. So the palm tree bends down and offers its fruit. And then she's thirsty. The spring miraculously appears. That That's the biblical story. So it's usually kind of the midday. What Stella has chosen is the moment before these miracles have happened, and the Joseph is assisting Mary down from the donkey, but you can see the way the figures are shaded, that it is a a sort of darkening of the day. Now, lapis is very expensive, and usually doesn't come in very big sheets. Usually you piece it together, that particular piece, as small as it is, is pieced together. And then to amplify it and to make it into a full rectangle, the artist has used slate around the edges to fill out the full rectangle. So he paints around the edges the kind of edge of the trees and everything, and we look, uh, we're look, we going looking through a kind of opening in the trees. And lapis lazuli is characterized by either what they call occlusions of calcite, uh, a kind of pure white stone, or pyrite, which are little flecky pieces like gold. And Stella has used the calcite to suggest this kind of moon glow that you get. So you have this darkened, shadowy area in which the Holy Family start to rest, and then you look through to see the moon glow. It, it's marvelous. I mean, you know, again, he just sees the stone and gets this idea that I can do this. Moon through the woods, kind of idea. So he he's a marvelous painter. Marvelous.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a terrific painting, and in the catalog it is published both at page size and at actual size. For me, it's it's a little bit bigger than half to two thirds. I don't know. It's about half to two thirds of my hand to give listeners an idea of the size. I brought up portraits on on stone, particularly dark stone such as slate, a moment ago, but never paid it off because you started saying interesting things and I followed along. <laughs> We're all familiar with piles and piles and piles of Renaissance portraiture on panel and later canvas. What was the benefit to or the reason for making portraits on stone? There, what was a surprising to me, not that I'm an expert, um, number in the show, including a terrific little one attributed to Sofonisba.
1: I think, now there are two portraits in the show that are on porphyry. And that's pretty obvious because, and in those, both of those cases, the artists did allow bare stone. So you're very aware that they're on porphyry. They're both probably uh, Medici. And so the whole idea is porphyry in that period, really going back to not just to Rome, but to uh, sort of Middle Eastern kingdoms. Porphyry, the purple porphyry was a regal, very expensive, representing power and wealth So by painting a Medici's portrait on porphyry and then allowing the porphyry to be shown is a a statement about power and importance.
0: Let me jump in real quick. One of those two is attributed to Bronzino, and I forget who the other one is.
1: uh, Attributed to Macchietti. So the others that are painted on stone, I don't think I know of another painting where the stone is bare on those... I mean, I think all the portraits, the stone is covered, but I maybe forget something. I mean, in, in the show, they're all covered. I think if I describe an experience I had, I think it will perhaps allow people to understand why I'm so convinced about the fact that painting something on stone changes it immediately when it's painted on stone. I was in Rome on a fellowship, and I was looking into... The point in my research, I was really trying to answer the question, why? Why did artists paint on stone? And I thought one good way to get at that might be to look at these altarpieces. Because altarpieces, they went to great expense. They had to hire people to cut the stone into, uh, because the altarpieces, which are like 13 feet high sometimes, 20 feet high, are made of multiple blocks of stone. And so they had to have stonemasons prepare them. And yet when you see them, you're not aware that they're on stone. They're, they're, they're completely covered. So I was looking. There are about 30 extant of these altarpieces in Rome right now. So I was making my way. I wasn't able to see all of them. Anybody who's tried to see specific works of art in Rome knows that inevitably you come against something that has odd opening hours or it's under a weird jurisdiction or you have to make application three months before or whatever. So I was in this chapel in Church Santa Prisede, which is an early Christian church. It's actually most famous for a ninth century mosaic chapel, the San Zeno Chapel. It's a marvelous place near Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome. And it was a a chapel that I'd actually studied as part of my doctoral research, so I'd spent some time in this space before. But in particular, I was looking at the altarpiece, the altarpiece I knew to be on stone. I had not realized that when I had been studying it back in the 80s when I was doing my dissertation. So as I was looking at it, the subject of the altarpiece is Christ carrying the cross. So you're very aware, once you know it's on stone, you're very aware of the heaviness of the cross. It's very aware. And then this is lined up with an image of Christ ascending out of the tomb and then at the very top or or being resurrected out of the tomb. And at the top of the chapel in the middle of the ceiling, it's as if there's a hole that's been painted in the ceiling and Christ is ascending through the hole. It's all illusionism, but it's painted to look that way. And as I looked up, I just had this very physical reaction knowing the altarpiece was on stone and, and being aware of the heaviness. And then as you look up, you had this sense of being freed into the divine realm. It was incredible. It was really a powerful experience. And at that moment, I just thought they had to know this was on stone. They didn't do this for nothing, that this is on stone. So as I began to look at more and more things, and I thought, well, how does this differ when it's on stone? And asking that question. And when you look at portraits, Take the Sophonisba, which is just to die for. And I have to say, not everyone is perfectly agreed it's by sofonisba. Some scholars do. I do, from what I know of sofonisba's work. It has this lovely, ethereal quality to the sitter. It's a young boy with a book. It just, when it's on stone, it becomes this memorial. It's one of the most interesting portraits in the show, and, and we'll, we'll set this up when we install. So this will be the thing you see as you first enter the exhibition. It's uh, three portraits, three heads, three profile views. It was probably made in Fontainebleau at the court in Fontainebleau. And it's entitled The Minions of Henry III, which are the uh, among this group of male lovers that Henry had. And in the course of one year in 1578, uh, several of them died, including the three favored ones, and many people think that's what this portrait is intended to commemorate. And it makes a lot of sense because Henry was devoted to these three in particular. He he was recorded at their bedsides. He carried locks of their hair after they died. It was a really kind of intense mourning for him. And by making this portrait on stone, in which he shows them not looking out at you in full frontal view, but in a profile view, well, profile portraiture is really retardaire. It wasn't being done in the 1570s. It was an older form, primarily a 15th century method. And then they're dressed, their dresses, and one would think they're women when you first look at it, because they do have these kind of elaborate hair treatments and elaborate dresses. The dress is 16th century. The hair treatment is a 15th century. So it's play with the idea of time, and putting it on a piece of stone, I think, really does suggest the kind of lasting of their memories, that this transcends a moment and it goes into time. So it becomes a very powerful image by putting it on stone. But you have to, it's true, you have to know it's on stone. And you wouldn't immediately, and this is from the Milwaukee Art Museum, and I talked to the curators there, you know, and it's its not immediately evident to visitors there that this is a different painting. They just think it's a painting with black background. But again, Black
0: paint over black stone. Um, yeah, it, that, that's an amazing picture. And it's pretty good sized. It's a couple of feet wide.
1: Yeah, for a painting on
0: stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are five pictures in the show and a sixth in the catalog by Giuseppe Cesare, better known as Cavaliere d'Arpino. And each of them is a Perseus rescuing Andromeda. And my sense is that they serve as a kind of control, if you will. So they're on all different stuff. Slate, lapis, wooden panel, canvas, copper, and I think one more on slate.
1: Yeah, Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so what does putting together all of these pictures of a single subject by a single artist, and really pretty similar compositions, of course, what will that allow visitors to see?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, you nailed it. It is sort of the control. Now, originally, I was going to have all of them together in one gallery and sort of open to the idea of stone, but... Now we have three of them at the beginning of the show as a kind of little moment where you can look at the same composition on three different supports. Again, my attempt to allow visitors to focus on the effect of the surface on which you paint. So the three at the beginning will be the one on canvas, the one on panel, and the one on copper. Then later in the show, you'll encounter the one on lapis lazuli, one on Pietra Paisina, and one on slate. The one on lapis lazuli is the raison d'etre for this show. It was a painting we bought at auction. It was the only time that in in old master paintings we'd ever bought at auction. And it was only due to a patron of the museum, a man by the name of Christian Pieper, who died in 2011, but a lovely, lovely man. And he had been attracted to this painting. When he saw it in the catalog, he suggested we buy it and that he would help us purchase it. I went to New York. I was just flipped over this painting. It's so fabulous. And we were able to buy it, although at a considerably greater cost than it was uh, listed in the catalog. But anyway, that's what triggered my attempt to understand paintings on stone. And so... It just turns out that by sheer dumb luck, we hit upon a composition. I don't know of any other stone composition like this that exists on all these other supports. So it, it just seemed like such a teachable moment that, you know, we, we, we're sort of not showing you a example of a panel painting and a canvas painting, but the same composition on panel and canvas. So you could really focus on how the support changes or the effect of the support changes it.
0: Yeah, we'll have all six on manpodcast.com. My experience of the catalog has been that I have spent a lot of time flipping between those <laughs> those five or six pages. It's pretty, it's pretty wild. So at the time artists are, are beginning to paint on stone in, in, in the 16th century is when many Renaissance collectors, wealthy men, are fascinated by gems gems and cameos from, say, the classical world. Was artists' interest in stone at all related to that then quite contemporary interest in gems?
1: I think so. I mean, I, I haven't necessarily found any specific links, although, as I told you, the Medici are setting up this sort of cabinet for all sorts of different stones. There is a growing interest in the categorization and the identification of different types of stone where the term geology comes into use. So this, this interest in, in identification of, of various stones. I mean, one of the stones that is used for painting support, which we're lucky to have a supreme example in the show, is amethyst, you know, which would one would not think of necessarily as a, a support for a flat painting. So yes, I, I think unquestionably, you know, these are all intertwined. I, I don't think you can separate it out entirely. At the last gallery of the show, we will have an image and then pieces from the most celebrated collector's cabinet or quince cabinet from the 17th century or, or today celebrated because it's largely intact. It was made in Augsburg by this kind of entrepreneurial and sort of magician by the name of Philip Heinhofer, and ended up being given as a gift to the Swedes because they helped defend Augsburg in the, I guess, Hundred Years' War. And so it was made in the, am I getting the dates right, 1620s to 40s, and it was filled with all sorts of things, weird specimens, you know, weird fish and narwhal horns and automata and playing cards and just all sorts of games and also lots of paintings on stone. Lots of the doors or the uh, cabinets included pieces of uh, stone that were painted. And so there were also examples of gems, I believe, in that cabinet. So unquestionably, they're all interrelated.
0: One of the other things that I noticed in a bunch of works in the show is that it seems like painters are using stone to suggest uncertainty or wonderment in a way that draws a viewer in, into a work. There's an Alessandro Valori in the catalog that is a crucifixion with the Magdalene that when I saw the painting in the catalog, I thought to myself, oh, that could show day or night, and maybe that's the point. Is there something in that? Is there something in painters using stone to animate scenes in ways that prompts wonder and question and thus greater engagement?
1: Yes. <laughs> in a word, yes. You're astute in the Allure. The whole idea is, if you remember your Bible in John, is this whole idea of it goes from day to night at the moment of Christ's death. And medieval artists used to often uh, encapsulate that idea with the sun and a moon, shown on either side of the cross. So this nether space of rich blue lapis lazuli, which on the one hand could be, yes, a vibrant blue sky, or suggesting, as it was in that uh, stella we talked about, more of an evening. So, yes. Yes, stone does a really good job of establishing the idea of the divine and that you are in the presence of miracles or miraculous events the Filippo Lowry we spoke about already on amethyst. The technique for using amethyst was generally to paint the back of the amethyst. And, you know, amethyst type of quartz, it varies in density from a pure opaque purple to nearly transparent uh, spaces. So by backing, by painting the back of the amethyst either with red paint or with gilding. You enhance the either the intensity of the purple with the red, or with gold, you give it even more of a sense of this just sense of uh, aura or of a miraculous event. Lowry, in using it for the baptism, now interestingly, we have a, a contemporary account which describes amethyst as water. So Lowry may have had that in mind because this is the baptism, which obviously water plays a big role. But also this idea that, you know, there are these moments in the Bible where called theophanies where God speaks. And one of them is at the baptism where from the sky they hear this, this is my son. And so the use of this purple quartz, the amethyst, backed with gold Gives you this sense of the sky kind of ablaze, or it's clearly just not an everyday event. It, it really does speak to the kind of divine or a spectacular event. And we see a number of instances, particularly with the nativity, or or usually the adoration of the magi, or the adoration of the shepherds, those events from, you know, when Christ was just a baby, and either the three kings arrived to in kind of in recognition of his greater kingship, they being kings, but he the greater king, or the shepherds, the the more sort of wide sort of citizenry, sort of recognizing the divinity of this child, and so they are. In the case of the shepherds, it's a glory of angels kind of appearing in the sky. So when you use some form of of stone, and uh, particularly a stone with lots of colors in it, or striations with various colors. It automatically conveys that sense and makes a very powerful picture.
0: For some reason, that reminded me of the pictures in the show by Antonio Tempesta.
1: Yes, he's the other great master of stone.
0: Because he's got, he's using stone as the Red Sea, and the Red Sea has like 12 different colors. (laughs) Across five different paintings.
1: (laughs) Right. And unfortunately, you know, that was sort of a hard thing to accept. We had intended to have this little mini show of of Red Sea by Tempesta because every time it's completely different. He sort of takes his cues from the stone, but then he's not above enhancing the stone when he needs to. Sometimes he added rings, these sort of kind of concentric rings you sometimes get in Alabaster. He would add a few extra if he needed them or something like that. We do have a nice array. We have two hunting scenes by Tempesta on a Uh, what's called dendritic stone, and it speaks to these little iron deposits in the stone that look like little twigs or leaves. And so he uses them to guide him as to where to make these trees that the hunters are uh, hunting among. We also have a double-sided painting by him of the Annunciation on one side and the Christ appearing to his mother on the other. And again, this is a case where For the Annunciation, the whole idea of using a translucent stone has tons of meaning because it it may happen earlier, but the earliest examples I know go back to like the 12th century, where the fact that Mary maintained her virginity after she gave birth was likened to light passing through glass or light passing through stone. So the stone itself is a metaphor for the continued virginity of Mary. And then when you paint the Annunciation where Mary is told she will give birth on it, it's just a powerful, powerful image. And then the third example by Tempesta is the Red Sea, where, yes, it's marvelous. As I said, we had four other examples of the Red Sea we were hoping to have all together so you could see how different they are. But I think we got the best one. I think the one in Budapest is just to die for. It's fabulous, a fabulous piece of stone. He creatively uses it to the rocky outcroppings are where the Hebrews take refuge, but it's also the sea that floods in and drowns the uh, soldiers in Pharaoh's army. So it turn anything into what he needs it to be to make a
0: great picture. Consider Pandemic Challenges Reason to Get the Catalog. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Judy Mann, thanks very much. Well, thank you, Tyler. It's
1: always wonderful to talk to you and I enjoyed it tremendously.
0: Getty invites you to a visual celebration of Imogen Cunningham, one of the greatest photographers of the 20th century. On view at the Getty Center through June 12, 2022, Imogen Cunningham A Retrospective brings together nearly 200 of the artist's insightful portraits, elegant flower and plant studies, poignant street pictures, and groundbreaking nudes. Join Getty for the first major retrospective of her work in the United States in more than 35 years and discover how this extraordinary artist pushed boundaries for both women and photography. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Ulysses Jenkins without your interpretation. This major retrospective of the groundbreaking Los Angeles artist encompasses video works, performances, and archival ephemera that highlight the scope of Jenkins' 50-year practice. A pivotal influence on contemporary art since emerging in the late 1970s, Jenkins has constructed an other history that interrogates race and gender as they relate to ritual, history, and state power. Ulysses Jenkins is on view at the Hammer Museum February 6th through May 15th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. This spring, the Pulitzer presents Assembly Required, an exhibition featuring nine artists whose work invites your active participation. Engage with work by Francis Elise, Rashid Arine, Saya Armajani, Tanya Bruguera and Instar, Ligia Clark, Elio Oidesika, Yoko Ono, Ligia Pape, and Franz Erhard Walter. Created between the 1950s and the present, the artworks respond to distinct social and political moments, from unrest in the United States during the Vietnam War, to Peru's military dictatorship. The artists offer unique perspectives on social change, addressing the need for optimism and hope in the face of global tensions. The exhibition poses questions about how art allows us to imagine new ways of being in the world. Assembly Required opens March 4th and is on view through July 31st, 2022. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Nicholas Galanin. His work is on view in The Scene Changes, a sculpture from the Sheldon's collection at the Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. The Sheldon acquired Galanin's 2012 The Dream is a Lie and Well in 2020. Galanin's work has been the subject of solo shows at Davidson College, at the BYU Museum of Art, the Montclair Art Museum, the Missoula Art Museum, the Anchorage Museum, and more. In 2018, the Heard Museum in Phoenix presented a survey of his career. Later this year, the Weatherspoon Art Museum at UNC Greensboro and the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville, Arkansas, will present solo exhibitions of Galanin's work. Galanin is a linkett and Unanga artist whose work examines contemporary Indigenous identity, culture, and representation, and interrogates the routine misappropriation of Native culture, colonialism, and collective amnesia. Nicholas Galanin, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. A foundation of your practice is that there is an intersection between many of the issues facing the modern world and the contemporary American nation. That climate change is related to imperialism, is related to crimes against humanity and genocide perpetuated against Native people. Was that series of overlapping and interlocked interests there from when you started studying art as an undergrad almost 20 years ago, or did it kind of emerge as you went through the academic art artist making process?
2: (laughs) It's always emerging and it's always shifting and, and changing and a large part of the practice is listening. So I've become maybe better equipped through time to hold some of these conversations and create works, you know, around them that necessarily as a young artist wasn't entirely sure of how to engage that that space, so to say. So I think a lot of important aspects to understanding the world is travel and experience. With that, everything changes continually.
0: Something about your practice suggests to me that you've spent a lot of time simply studying the nature around where you live in Alaska. Some of that, I think...
2: Yeah, we live closely to the land as core aspects of cultural... Understanding, I suppose, is that, you know, we cut where we come from and how significant that is to how it shapes us that disconnect when witnessed in corporate colonial world becomes apparent on how damaging that can be.
0: I want to raise two kind of linked materials, if you will, that you use in, in your work and talk a little bit about why they're so important within your practice. One is your use of bears, if use is the right word, and, and that is to say polar bears, and I think maybe also brown and black bears, pop up in your work a lot. Why so many bears? And, and maybe more importantly, what do bears allow you to do in Address?
2: I mean, they've, they've only showed up a few times in a few projects and pieces. The and first one that you might be referring to is the American Dream is a lion well, which is a bear taxidermied rug though there's no bear in place. It's the American flag. And replacing the claws of the bear are 50 caliper ammunition rounds and replacing the teeth are, you know, it's gold-plated teeth. So it's a reference to this who's American dream. It's a reference to the violence that has and continues through, you know, building forms or ideas of that. It's also a reference to these superpower governments or structures. And, and taxidermy is also something that this idea of trophy in a sense that was not necessarily a relationship that we ever had in our indigenous communities. We didn't really separate ourselves like that and harvest things to, you know, hang them on a wall type exploit. So that transitions into We Dreamt Deaf, which is the other bear.
0: Yeah, from 2015.
2: We Dreamt Death is a... You know, that works found taxidermy as well. And the work is a polar bear that created from a polar bear that had been harvested or shot by a white sport hunter in the 60s. The bear was shot on the island. It was shot on Shishmarov. So a lot of these conversations that started, you know, in the 60s in this particular piece continue to now to the work and how our actions impact the world how it impacts other communities how it impacts other beings that are here that we share this planet with in this case the polar bear which is iconic and representation of you know a quickly changing environment melting sea ice is something that has impacted you know the arctic and particularly polar bears in general so some of the first communities to feel pressure from climate crisis are these northern communities. So, yeah, this work involves a lot of what got us here, what type of mentality, and it also, you know, represents that in this form of that bear kind of melting into the back of that taxidermy trophy.
0: The the back of the taxidermy trophy, so this is going to be a taxidermically incorrect <laughs> phrasing almost certainly, but the but the back half of the bear is not the back half of the bear in We Dreamt Deaf is not presented the same way as the front half of the bear, which is to say the back half of the bear is the bear's skin and fur against against a platform.
2: Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's felted too, like a, like you would see a rug.
0: And, and that work got me thinking about how hides are present in much of your work. Hides of many animals, deer, sea otter, and so on, in, in works such as Space Invaders from 2013, which you made with. Jared Galanin, who I'm guessing is your brother?
2: Yeah, it's collaborative work with my brother.
0: <laughs> and a work called Passé, also from 2013, which uses, I think, both hide and fur. Although it's wall-mounted, so I guess you kind of can't see the hide. Why hides? What? Why? Um, you've used hides in a lot of different ways and in a lot of different works. Why are they a useful medium, if
2: you will? As I said earlier, we do, you know, I hunt and fish here in Alaska to feed, feed, feed my family and to provide. So these are materials that have long been in our continuum of, of how we utilize everything that we do, harvest, how, we, how it ties into, you know, our survival even. Some of this stuff's politicized in ways. Otter hides, sea otter hides, for instance, you know, the sea otter was almost hunted to, to extinction when Russians came through enslaving Onunga hunters to hunt these hides. And then, you know, of course, they were traded and sold globally. Some of those histories and conversations are, you know, we still I do, still do hunt seal and sea otter here. We are impacted by those histories, by those federal regulations and laws that are tied into who can legally hunt these animals.
0: Another way we see the natural world in your work is in your construction of carved objects, particularly in wood, although you also carve in metal. And there are some great videos out there of you carving. And what's interesting about them is we see you doing the work. You know, you're not using a fabricator or, 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 or a machine-tooled fabricator. Actually, we also see videos of you fishing as as bears look on which as um, a southern Appalachian hiker I both admire and am terrified by. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But carving is about the removal of a material until a form is both revealed and left behind. And so I understand from a biographical point of view that you became interested in carving through a number of people, including your father and your uncle. But are you also interested in carving as a practice that holds within a metaphor because it removes something and leaves behind a form?
2: Some of the very first forms of introduction into creative world for me had been through you know traditional or customary apprenticeships of wood carving. That's where I really got my foundation of what all I do. So I think of a lot of these processes are really similar in a lot of ways, and it's something that I'll always continue to practice. But yeah, I have done other types of carving that represent more of process, more of an action, more of conversation of what's being removed or reshaped. So the unceremonial dance mask was a series of carvings where it wasn't necessarily the careful carving that was taking place. I was carving a Indonesian mask that was appropriated from indigenous clinket style masks. So it was, you know, tourist curio knock off. I was carved those masks until all the chips remained, and then um, nothing else, the image, the form, but then rebuild those chips into another mask and attach hair to that. In that process, it was, a you know, I guess it was deconstructing aspects of capitalism that feeds upon our cultural visual language, feeds upon the appropriation of our ceremonial objects. It was also a form of what It was a representation of what we have to do at times when we are trying to survive as our continuum and culture legacy of work we make while navigating a world that tries to freeze us in the past, that tries to only seek to call us authentic or this or that if we've, you know, fit a historical, romanticized ideal. So it's a reminder that we get to. Continue and move forward as as we see necessary. It's a reminder that our culture is living and will change and shift, and we are the you know living stewards of that culture. So the work we do now will guide that.
0: They're fascinating works. We'll have images on on manpodcast dot com. They're right up there with my my favorite of your works. Maybe my very favorite is a work that I've heard you call a petroglyph. It's a work that I, you started making in the early 2010s. I don't know if it's air quotes complete or not, but it's on a rock. I think near your home, and it's a rock into which you have carved the word "Indians." Am I describing that okay so far?
2: <laughs> yeah, that that is earlier earlier ongoing kind of series of work that has taken place in various locations. So, you know, that was the logo of that was the Cleveland Indians baseball logo.
0: Yeah, and just to be clear real quick, that you started making this work while the team was still called the Cleveland Indians. It is now called something else.
2: (laughs) Yeah, they've been since been... A name, a name change. But that's a time for me, that's always been like a time-based piece too, in, in a sense, the ideas of petroglyphs surviving for so long that they can even lose context of of what was represented or what is being said or shared in that space and to the to the living communities there now. So for me, it's particularly interesting. I didn't know if we'd ever be around to see the the shift of context immediately you know, immediately meaning years later, a decade later or whatever, but because that context has shifted now from that work where they, you know, they have changed their name, but the the trademark, the idea that this work is going to out, out, it's going to outlast the trademark, it's going to outlast, you know, all these other things, and it will become in its own time, indigenous petroglyph again, so.
0: it's It's a really interesting work for a lot of reasons. One is that unlike what we might think of as petroglyphs in the southwest of the United States. It is uh, a petroglyph that you have carved into the rock and that, as I understand it, you carved over many visits and many physical actions of carving it into rock. Was part of your interest in that work creating, you know, a so-called earthwork, something that exists on what I presume is geologic time? I mean, these are not soft rocks you're, you're... carving into for example i mean these look pretty basaltic to me
2: (laughs) yeah no it is definitely land art and engaging in a long period of time through putting something into into the stone or rock like that so again it's also an undisclosed location which is you know part of this part of the idea of i suppose discovery
0: so in in indians you are removing material stone from a stone and there's a lot of emphasis on removal and erasure across a lot of your work. So take, for example, your imaginary Indian works, which often use wallpaper to point to erasure and to reject the idea of absence. You know, for, for many centuries, wallpaper was used was a decorative art. And I'm interested in your use of decorative art as ex, as having the potential to extend ideology or address ideology, because that's something I'm working on a lot in my work as an historian. What made wallpaper a site of potential action for
2: you? The first series that I'd created, I think it was by 2009 or 10, somewhere around there. It was 2008, actually. Yeah. Wow. It was uh, Imaginary Indian series, which, you know, I used a wallpaper With imagery from, you know, like a French toile design, on that imagery of that wallpaper was families having picnics, making wine, swinging, doing these, you know, leisure
0: activities, I suppose. Kind of pastoral pursuits in, in the European form.
2: Yes. And during that time period here at home, our communities were faced with a very different reality of you know, forced assimilation, of removal of our children, of the violence of colonization. So, yeah, that work utilized that imagery specifically. And our wallpaper design has been painted over some of our cultural forms, but they're not just necessarily direct cultural objects. I've used a lot of non-Native Native art. So, you know, imagery that mimics our, our ceremonial art. Oftentimes carved by non indigenous or white people, or hired for hired Indonesian carvers to exploit cheap steel and labor, only to bring those masks back to our community and sell them to tourism. So, in a lot of ways, it was further removing us from even our visual language at this point. So, also looking at how the shift in consumption of our culture has impacted uh, us so you know those a lot of times our objects our iconography is heavily consumed and it's this idea of wanting aspects of what we create are things that are exotified but not wanting the community that is largely responsible for caring for and creating for those those things so
0: yeah they're 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 really interesting works and they also (laughs) <laughs> one of the things that's interesting to be across your practice is how sometimes we get a polar bear and sometimes we get wallpaper. And one is much more, you know, one, one, one is referencing kind of a manifestation of fear or physical aggression. Um, I mean, I've never been in front of a polar bear, but and, and, and on the other hand, you know, in, 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 in say the works of yours that address decorative arts or maybe, you know, they're much quieter and subversive and require much closer looking in how they act upon us. And so there's, that, there's a range of strategies, there's a range of artistic strategies that sometimes the range itself is effective, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I mean, I think it's important to be for me to be able to move freely as an artist across mediums and ideas. But.
0: Love it. Nicholas Galanin, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show.